0: Hey, treasure hunters. Do you have your own story about treasure lost or found? Send in your best stories about the unique, weird, or fascinating odds and ends your family has in their attic. And I may just read them on the show. The email you want is losttreasurepod at gmail.com. All one word. And now on to the show. South Africa, Limpopo Province, 2005. Makobo Constance Modaji VI was not your typical 25-year-old woman, but she liked the sorts of things you might associate with someone around her age—texting with friends, going out to clubs, a good pair of jeans, and living life to the fullest. And in the area known as Modajikloof, South Africa, none of these pastimes were taken for granted— Mokobo's village of Ketlakone was in a transitional state, a feature it shared with many other communities in rural South Africa, a beautiful nation with a somewhat ugly past in colonization and racial segregation. Though it came to a close in 1994, the stain of apartheid has never really been erased from the South African paradigm, but the end of the 90s did see a transitioning in the lifestyle for many ancestral South Africans of all backgrounds and tribal affiliations. For many, including the Lovedu, also known as the Balubedu people, tradition was always celebrated and modern resources pragmatically embraced. Makoba was one of the people who fully welcomed this change as South Africa slipped into a new millennium and several nations in Africa started building towards a movement that would modernize and revolutionize the entire continent. But as I said, Makobo was anything but average. She was the ruler of her people. And in the grander scheme of leadership, she was a queen among queens. Because Makobo did not just hold sway over her countrymen, but over the weather itself. She was the rain queen, a royal descendant in the long line of women said to bless their people with the nourishment of rain and curse their enemies with ravaging storms. Let's see Queen Elizabeth pull some of that off. Makoba was beloved among her people, kind of. Among her own court, she was a bit of a controversy. She was not afraid to issue some of the more restrictive traditions imposed on her by her forebears. For one, the life of the rain queen was said to be almost monastic. She was not to be seen by the world at large, and only by her own subjects at appointed times. Her exposure to those of the opposite sex was only to be among her own family members, and her male suitors were to be arranged. Yet, among the court of the Mojaji, or ruler of days, the women were the ones who held the power. They alone could call the rains, and basically, they ran this queendom. Hell yeah. So it became an incredible controversy when Makobo started going outside her palace to start dating in a way most urbanized South Africans were accustomed to. Of course, nobody was going to say no to Makobo. She was the Mojaji. Heck, it was even part of her name. But people did protest. After all, Makobo herself was technically already married. She had quite a few wives, in fact. These appointed women were more like ladies in waiting. But they basically served as her companions, and any of their children were technically also Makobos. Now this is the first part where I'm going to urge caution and understanding. Listeners, wherever you are in this beautiful, amazing world, it's always a good idea to take a step back from your own cultural frames of references. Though none of this is a perfectly seamless translation, the children of the wives of the Modaji might look up to the queen as a kind of aunt figure which are already incredibly powerful roles in many African cultures, and many other parts of the world for that matter. Eventually, Makobo took on a male lover, one who was not even of her own village or royal bloodline. David Mogale was a municipal employee from the nearby city of Lataba, a little removed from the pastoral quiet of the Modaji court. Mogali was shrewd and charming, and even a queen such as Makobo fell for him. By him she had a child, Masala and her countrymen were scandalized. And this is kind of where things start to go awry in Makobo's rule. Reportedly, her inner circle was already a bit miffed at Queen Makobo when she began selecting her own council against their wishes. It's possible that this just might have been a clash with Makobo's modern intellect, It's noteworthy that she was computer-trained in a region that was doing developmentally well, but still acquiring new technology. The elders balked when Makobo brought David to her compound to live with her, and in time, they overruled her majesty, casting out David Mogali from their court and their village. I just want to make it clear that i don't feel comfortable speculating on the intimate details of an african woman's personal life so i'm really only comfortable with going on what is reported at this point in Makobo's history it's not quite clear what happens next in her timeline but on june 10th 2005 Makobo constance modaji the was rushed to the polo medical clinic with an indeterminate illness Her health kind of had already been in decline and no one really knew what was up. She had started losing her eyesight around the time her daughter was born. Unfortunately, the doctors could do nothing for her and she died two days later at age 27, leaving a four-month-old daughter behind. Officially, Makobo's death was attributed to chronic meningitis, but some others within her circle speculated that she died of a broken heart. And still, those who were dearest to her were just shocked by her sudden death. And some of them were a little bit suspicious. Before Makobo died, Mogale formed his own council, shortly after the birth of their daughter. This was not well received by Makobo's confidants. When Makobo died, the tribal elders and the tribal council, both who were made up of different members of her family, could not decide who would carry out the funeral process. Eventually, the two sides of the tribe compromised. Then, on the night before Makobo's interment, an alarm went out throughout the village. The house that held Makobo's coffin had caught fire. Villagers acted swiftly and prudently. These were people who were gifted by the element of water, remember? And they were able to put out the blaze before it reached her coffin. But as the smoke cleared, questions remained. For one, nobody could quite figure out how the fire had even started. One of Makobo's family members, Mogage Mudaji, who held rainmaking powers of her own, was very blunt about the situation, and her opinion reflected a community that entrusted in faith, nature, and rationality. She said it could be the ancestors, it could be witchcraft, or it could be arson. In Modaji's kloof, all were valid possibilities, and each of them carried a dark connotation. Some in the village suspected that the fire, if it was arson, had been started to cover up something. This incident and Makobo's untimely death summoned a rainless cloud of suspicion over the small queendom. Custom dictated that the village go into a yearly period of mourning, which meant that discussion over the Rain Queen's succession was limited. People couldn't even really talk about Makobo, let alone try to figure out what might have happened to her. Eventually, the elders addressed the elephant in the room. Oh, and uh, seeing as this is South Africa, I should clarify that that's a metaphor. Though Makobo had given birth to a daughter, and this would seem a likely heir to inherit the reign queen title, there was almost immediate protest against this chain of succession. The council argued in favor of handing down succession to the daughter of Prince Papatla, the queen's brother. In other words, they wanted to choose her niece. Further in complications, some of the male elders, no doubt in a very misogynistic fashion, declared that the reign of the queens was over, that Makobo had tainted the bloodline, and that the rule should be restored to the male lineage instead. As the council squabbled for succession, David Mogale, Makobo's lover, was furious. And not only was he angry, but ambitious. And he had something to say about all of this. Mogale, who had already built up a small group of supporters, challenged the village leadership, claiming that he had royal blood and that his and Makobo's daughter, Masalanabo, should inherit the rain queen title. Based on his rather scheming behavior, I don't think this was an entirely altruistic goal. Mogale even went so far as to accuse the council of poisoning Makobo themselves, Defying their rule and fearing that he was losing his power that he had accumulated in the village, Mogale took his and Makobo's daughter and fled to a nearby city 17 miles away from the queendom. This episode is most definitely about a treasure, one of particularly historical significance, too often overlooked, frequently exoticized, and in certain cases, whitewashed and erased. But this treasure is not really a physical object. It's a title, and depending on how you look at it, a bloodline. Believe it or not, the adventure story genre which often covers lost treasure and lost civilizations, didn't start with Indiana Jones. In fact, this literary genre's origins can be traced back to a not-so-nice period of history known as British colonialism, which had reached its zenith during the Victorian era. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the nations of Africa were not always given a fair shake, historically speaking. Under the guise of air quotes, bringing civilization to a dark continent, European imperialism divided the countries of Africa like a big old colonialist blueberry pie, in the hopes of gobbling up a geologically rich continent's resources. So the white people were like, hey Africa, which is now just one big country by the way, we're here to bring you civilization. And the people of Africa were like, nah, we already sort of have that. And then England was all like, yes, but ours is better and it's yours now too yay but also not yay because suddenly all of these many different tribes and kingdoms and nation states were all lumped together and their political leadership and systems of government completely stripped from them to say that this caused chaos is putting it lightly and it continues to do so let me point to a little something called the rwandan genocide and move on Now that the world's most ecologically diverse continent was open season, all sorts of British bigwigs had something to say about a continent they didn't understand. So they pretty much decided to make stuff up as they went along. Africa was seen as a dark land of jungles and mystery, with uncivilized and dangerous people who lacked the intelligence and decency of white men. Which is funny, since historically speaking, Africans weren't the ones going around in big ships raping and pillaging everything in sight. In ancient days, Africa was known by Europeans as Abyssinia, which literally means the bottomless land. By their exploratory standards, the continent just kind of kept going and going, so they decided that it stretched all the way to the bottom of the globe. And who the hell knows what's down there? The nations of Africa stirred the imaginations of many authors, such as Rudyard Kipling and a writer by the name of H. Ryder Haggard, who grew up in South Africa. You'd think that this would have given him a gentler insight into the practices and customs of what was then mostly dominated by the Zulu Kingdom, but (laughs) nope. Haggard is attributed as the founder of the adventure novel, specifically the Lost World literary genre. As the name implies, the Lost World postulated that Africa was a land teeming with unexplored ruins and civilizations hiding in the mists. Maybe there were dinosaurs still hanging out somewhere inside all that, who knows? Haggard is not a name most Americans will be familiar with, but Britons might know him as the creator of the Alan Quartermain novels. Alan's a treasure hunter and adventurer, kind of like the proto-Indiana Jones, but just also a little bit racist. And for American listeners, that's the guy Sean Connery portrayed in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Just so you know. Haggard's first claim to fame wasn't Quartermain, but a book called She, A History of Adventure. But who is she? Haggard was familiar with the story of the Rain Queen and thought that was a super cool concept, except for the whole it being about a black African woman with power thing. So he created a tale of a professor and his young sidekick journeying to the heart of darkest Africa in search of a civilization ruled by a powerful queen who could control the weather. This queen was a feared monarch known as She Who Must Be Obeyed. She, it turns out, is Aisha. A beautiful white woman who commands her black worshippers and uses her wanton sexuality to pit men against each other. (sighs) Yep. I'd say that the origins of the actual Rain Queen are marginally less terrible, but also they involve incest, so eh... Like any true superhero origin story, there is a few theories for who started the lineage of the monarchs with built-in climate control. Officially, the Modaji royals trace their lineage back to Egypt and the time of the pharaohs. I'm sure it would be easy for some ancient astronaut theorists out there to conclude that the rain queens were the progeny of some alien ancestors with weather-controlling powers, or maybe they were just waterbenders. Anthropologists tell a different story, a lot of it a mix of legend and oral history. Monomotapa was the name of the then Kingdom of Zimbabwe in the 1500s, and this is where I'm going to insert a trigger warning, because this story kind of gets gross for a bit here. In the 1580s, one of their princes had an affair with one of his sisters, Zgundini, an affair that resulted in a pregnancy. Incest was just as taboo, if not more so, in the society of Monomotapa as it is in ours. So when word of this got out, it literally brought the kingdom to the brink of civil war. The royal family was in an uproar, and brothers of the household decided that they needed to bring back balance by killing the byproduct of this transgression, Zegundini's baby son. Before all of this could happen, the king thought quickly and regrettably decided that the only favorable outcome was in exiling his daughter and grandson, because at least this would spare them their lives and restore the order to the kingdom. Zingundini gathered her closest relatives and followers for the journey out into the wild, and the king, knowing that they would be screwed trying to make a livelihood for themselves out in the wilderness, slipped something into his daughter's pocket as she was leaving the palace. I actually don't know if she had pockets, that's just also kind of a metaphor. And this little something was a horn of mystical properties. Simply by blowing it, one could summon the rains. But the princess's mother decided that just this wasn't enough, and allegedly stole some other mystical rain-making charms as well. So these exiles were pretty well stocked in the magic department, at least. Zingundini's entourage crossed the mountains and settled on the other side of the Limpopo River, effectively founding the Lovedu tribe. There, she raised her son, Makalipe, who would go on to become the first in a line of six male rulers of the Lovedo over the next two centuries. By the end of the 1700s, the Lovedo were ruled by good King Kiale, who had a hobby, and that hobby was the ladies. And like many people with hobbies, Kiale had quite a bit of a collection. And as some people are protective over their Pokemon cards, no doubt Kiale was protective over his wives. Which is why it was kind of a big problem with one of his older sons basically tried hitting on one of them. I can only assume she was the equivalent of the Charizard wife. Because of this grossness, Kiale made it a thing that none of his sons could just automatically inherit the throne. This decision was now better left up to the ancestors. The ancestors decided that Kiale's son, Mokoto, was the least sleaziest of the bunch, and also the youngest. And so Kiale taught him the rainmaking rituals. But not all of the Lovedu were as cool with Makoto being king as Kiale was. And they were kind of like, Dude, you can't just make up a new law of succession because your sons are pervs. In time, Makoto had his own children, and they too got caught up in inheritance fever. They were apparently kind of all jerks to each other and threatened to kill each other over the rights to rule. So Makoto was like, Whoa, none of you all are fit to be kings. But Makoto also had a daughter, Masela Kwane, who was capable and clever. Except for that whole not having a penis thing, she was pretty fit for the job. But Makoto didn't have the best male-shaped options, so he said, Hey, Masela Kwane, you're super cool, and I don't care that you're a woman. It's time to lean in, girl. So he taught her the rain-making rituals in secret, and I'm sure all of the female ancestors, including Zungundini, were really thrilled about this new concept. So I guess there's this thing in old Lavedu culture that when a king dies, the heir is chosen by creating a hut and then opening it up, which apparently is really hard to do, I guess. So when Makoto died and joined the ancestors, his sons and Maslaquane, who remember is a girl, gathered around the challenge hut. And lo and behold, the Balubedu were Balu shook when Maslaquane nevertheless persisted and opened that hut the F up. Nobody challenged this because you just didn't challenge the will of the ancestors. I mean, have you ever pissed off your grandma? Mine's Italian and has a wooden spoon. The Lovedu's grandmas could summon actual thunder and lightning. Yeah. In the year 1800, Maslaquane was crowned as the first female ruler of the Lovedu and was also like, by the way, I control storms just in case you forgot. And to drive that point home, she created the royal title of Modaji, Ruler of Days, because she was just a badass like that. And this is one of the reasons the Lovedu managed to get by without being invaded and conquered all these years. In fact, the Lovedu to this very day don't keep warriors, they just don't have to, because the surrounding tribes and kingdoms KNOW not to mess with their queen. During Modaji I's rule, the Zulu Kingdom was owning the land, even chasing out the British. This was in part due to their king, Shaka Zulu, who was both a fearsome warrior and a skilled diplomat. He didn't bow down to nobody, but when his territory started suffering a severe drought, he went to the queen and asked her to give his lands her blessing. In turn, he promised to keep the peace among their people. Modaji, of course, obliged and sent a little rain their way. Queen Modaji I ruled for almost 60 years and firmly decided that the future was female and would remain as such. She passed on her title to Masalanabo, who the most recent queen's daughter is named after, by the way. Masalanabo did not have any children of her own, which is where the tradition of taking in wives came into play. This way, if the queen did not end up giving birth during her lifetime, she could just choose her favorite lady-in-waiting and pass on the title to her daughter. The only part the men played was in the actual baby-making aspect, and even then, the queen got first dibs on which knee she was going to reign queen up. Traditionally, it is believed that when a rain queen was close to death, she would drink the poisonous spinal fluid of a crocodile to speed up the process in order to pass along her powers to her successor. This might also play into the suspicions surrounding Makobo's death. However it all went down, the Rain Queen's succession saw numerous women rule the throne right up until the start of the next millennium. Even during apartheid, white leaders often tried to curry favor with the Rain Queen to keep the peace among black South Africans. Surprisingly, the Rain Queen agreed, but here's another cool power the Rain Queen apparently has the power over prophecy. Supposedly, all the women in the Modaji circle are endowed with visions. Maybe the queen knew the tides were going to change and decided on a diplomatic path in the meantime. This holdout certainly worked when Nelson Mandela campaigned for president. The rain queen endorsed him. I know what some of you more skeptically-minded folks are probably thinking right about now. Really? It is, of course, not a question amongst the Lovedu people. The rain queen does what her role implies. She makes it rain. Some anthropologists believe that the royal tradition of rainmaking was really just an early form of weather forecasting, and the ancestors were brilliant observers and record keepers of climate change and patterns. So, in an essence... They just knew when it was going to rain, and this alone is actually very remarkable. They were early meteorologists. But this doesn't explain why the area around the Lovedu community is traditionally bone dry, and yet the lands inside the territory of Mojaji's kloof are unusually quenched by what scientists have dubbed a rain belt. Among this belt is found a unique 750 acre of sicad trees, which are actually the oldest trees in the world, dating from prehistoric times. This species in particular is known as the Mojaji Sikhid, named for the queen who keeps the vast garden nourished. I think it's important that we don't mystify and exoticize this system of belief, though it is pretty cool. The Lovedu are used to the attention of outsiders, and they are more than happy to introduce their customs to the wider world. The way they put it to Westerners, just as Christians may pray to God for rain, so too does the rain queen intercede with the ancestors. And the way she does this, if I may speak in modern terms about a centuries-old custom, is actually pretty lit. Basically, when October rolls around and it's time to bring on the rain, the whole village just gets drunk. And when I say the whole village, I mean right down to the livestock, who you might expect from an agrarian culture are actually highly respected. On the first Saturday of October, the Lovedu congregate in the queen's compound, and the elders retrieve the rainmaking relics, which date to the time of the first rulers. A sacred cow, who always takes the inherited name of Makubo, is led into the compound where the lovedu pour libations of beer which they also offer up to makubo that's right they get the cow drunk the rest of the beer is then taken to a shrine next to the palace where the elders lay out the rainmaking charms the elders gather around and pour the beer over the relics while the rain queen beckons and summons the ancestors asking them to bring on the rain all the while The Rain Queen subjects chant and sing songs praising the power of their ruler. Instruments are brought out and the people dance for pretty much the rest of the day, until the children show up and they pick up drums as well. And at this point, that's when the drinking starts. The day culminates in revelry and celebration. As far as sacred rituals go, this one is pretty legit. When Queen Mokobo Madaji VI was crowned in 2003, it was said that she was a little bit reticent to accept her royal duties. But it rained on the day of her coronation, and when your job title involves the word rain, that's generally considered a good sign. When Mokobo died, the traditional council expressed concerns that, since her daughter, Masala Nabo, was fathered by someone from outside a royal bloodline, She could not inherit the Rain Queen title, so Makobo's brother, Prince Mapatla, was selected as an interim leader. Then things got a little bit dramatic. Makobo's husband, David Mogale, took his daughter and decided to raise her in secret, which sounds like the most Star Wars thing ever, doesn't it? And here's where we introduce a new character in the Modaji controversy. Matole Mochega, a former district premier with strong political ties and connections to David Mogale, Mochega Mogale alleges kidnapped Maslanabo under the pretext that the former premier intended to place her in a better educational system. A legal battle ensued and then was promptly thrown aside by the emissaries of Prince Mapatla, who were furious that Maslanabo was being tossed around as a political bargaining chip. Or at least, that's the story David Mogale tells. Mochega, it turns out, may have actually been acting under the auspices of the Modaji royal family. Mochega claims that he went to go check on Maslanabo and discovered that Mogale had been keeping her in squalid living conditions, a windowless shack, certainly no place for a princess. Mochega acted quickly and took Maslanabo back to their lands. The Modaji family then petitioned the government, who approved of the relocation. Maslanabo was eventually rescued from what her family described as a neglectful situation. To this day, the young princess remains under the care of her immediate family, but her legacy is in limbo. The Mojaji family says that the droughts that have cropped up over the last few years are probably unrelated to the turmoil, and it does appear that things are starting to look up for the Lovedu. Prince Mapatla has sworn that Maslanabo despite her controversial lineage, will still be enthroned as the Rain Queen when she reaches the proper age. Whether or not the title of Rain Queen will actually be restored, however, is still too soon to tell. But hey, maybe this is one lost treasure that will actually be found. The legacy of the Rain Queens is a cyclical tale, and since the dawn of these great women, it seems like conniving men have always tried to undermine their narrative. Being the only matriarchal monarchy left in all of Africa is nothing to sneeze at, but sitting through the conflicting reports and trying to entangle all of the dynastic intrigue is a bit difficult. And really, to plunge any further than what's out there is just simply not my place as an outsider. This is an ongoing situation with real people and real repercussions. And once again, all of this burden falls on the shoulders of a very young woman tasked with carrying out the will of her ancestors. All we can do is root for her. Relic is written and produced by me Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast or thought, eh, not bad the nicest thing you can do is leave a 4 or 5 star rating on iTunes so other people can find out about it You can connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and if you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net that's blueberry without the e next week we're going on a bushwalk to the heart of the australian outback in search of a lost treasure that may not have ever existed in the first place the adventure continues